Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, your host for the show and the CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media. This video show and podcast is produced with the support of CIO.com and the digital media division of Foundry, which is an IDG company. We're streaming live to you right now on LinkedIn and also to our CIO channel on YouTube. Our viewers are most cordially invited to join in today's conversation by submitting questions of your own. We have editors watching the stream and they'll be happy to pass them along to me and my guest, who today I'm very pleased uh, to say is Sean Edwards. He is the CTO of Bloomberg. He oversees the development of Bloomberg's global technology strategy, and he runs a uniquely influential CTO office that has been instrumental in developing all sorts of innovative products for Bloomberg's market data, analytics, news, and community offerings. You all know who Bloomberg, what Bloomberg is, of course. It was founded in 1981 and is based in New York City still. And Bloomberg provides economic, financial, and other real-time data, research, and information to financial companies and organizations around the world. As one of the world's leading financial media organizations, Bloomberg News produces roughly 5,000 stories a day. It's listed at number 33 now on Forbes' list of America's largest private companies, and it employs more than 21,000 around the world. Sean has been with Bloomberg since 2003, and five years after he got there, in 2008, he created the CTO office, where he assembled what is today a team of about 300 IT experts working on everything from leading edge tech research and user experience design to product management. His CTO office also runs Bloomberg's information security, its risk and compliance offices, and the company's overall machine learning strategy. In partnership with Bloomberg's AI engineering group, his team today works directly with academic researchers from top universities around the world on new ways to apply machine learning and AI to finance. And one of the most critical recent growth initiatives at Bloomberg, which we'll be talking about on today's show, was the creation of a new line of products centered around alternative data, which promises to become an essential aspect of Bloomberg's financial analytics. Before he joined Bloomberg, Sean worked for Bear Stearns and Company as the managing director in the fixed income trading group, and he's also held positions at Mentor Graphics and IBM. Sean, it's great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here, Mary Fran. Thank you for having me. All right. Let's start out with just a few of those kind of dazzling numbers, a few examples that give us an idea about the scope and the scale and the speed of the data-driven universe that you are part of at Bloomberg, all those market-moving systems. A lot of that goes through your office. So talk a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, you know, the financial markets uh, where we sit, the capital markets, is a, I think, in a unique position in the world of dealing with a huge amount of heterogeneous data. Uh, just to give you a few data points, um, Bloomberg ingests over 300 billion messages from exchanges around the world. We call them ticks um, mm -hmm. uh, every single day. Um, and so just to, as a comparison, uh, you know, the number of tweets that go on at Twitter, kind of their peak was about 500 million a day. That yeah. kind of gives you the comparison. Um, and we take every one of those messages and we have to process it. We It's not just about taking it and passing it on. We have to mm -hmm. normalize it. We do calculations on it, real-time calculations. We store it. We we distribute it around the world. And, we, and it kicks off ma massive amounts of calculations on it. Yeah. Uh, another data point. That's So that's, that's kind of from the world of structured data. The unstructured data world, we ingest over 2.5 million documents every day of various types mm -hmm. from... It's something from uh, you know 120,000 sources. It's everything from a company filings and Edgar filing to a press release uh, to right. transcripts of, of meetings and earnings calls. Uh, just a massive amount of unstructured data. Mm -hmm. This gives you kind of the flavor of of the 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 
the, uh, the amount of data that we're dealing with. And on top of all that, there's a massive amount of calculations and computations that are going on. Yes. Uh, notional value traded through our, or, or exchange through some of our systems is in, in trillions of dollars. And so, um, it's a it's a it's a very large world and and it's very it's heterogeneous it's not we're not dealing with one type of calculation or one type of data source which i find right. fascinating and interesting <laughs> well i i think it is i saw some of that when i was looking around and doing some of this research for our talk today uh the company sits on over 100 petabytes of data uh, and there's access to something like 575 different exchange products um, probably a lot of those are ones that stemmed out of the research and the work you do in the CTO office. Yeah, when the you know when I first created the uh, CTO office, um, mm -hmm. you know we were focused largely on um, researching and bringing in technology capabilities. Well, maybe I start in, in talking a little bit about the mission of the CTO yeah, office, which is absolutely it's, it's still the same, right? That when we started. You know, our mission has really been to help set the technology direction for the company, and it's evolved a bit. And now it's not just technology company uh, uh, direction; it's also technology product direction for the company. Yeah. Um, and some of the early work that we did was around uh, the real-time systems and architecture for the company, real-time data, the market data, the, the mm -hmm. data from venues is, is is such an important component of the ingredients that we use to uh, drive our analytics. And it's an important part of what we offer for our customers. And yeah. so um, there's, it, Bloomberg has had to build one of the world's largest private networks just to deal with this type of real-time data. We have exchange connectivity and uh, systems that are located around the world uh, to process this data and to, and to get it out to all of our customers. Just that system alone is a really interesting area of, of research. And then we continue to focus on that. It's, it's yeah. not something that you can just stop at any at moment, uh, moment's time. Market data is growing exponentially. Uh, and it's just something that we are, are continuing to tackle. Well, and when we first started talking about this, one of the things you said about the strategic focus of your office there is that the first hat that you wear, and you have a lot of hats that you wear, mm -hmm. the first one is collaboration, that yeah. you're also working with, your team is about 300 people, but you are very deeply tapped into the engineering, the global engineering group, which is some 8,000 data and systems engineers. That's right. Do I have that right? That's, that's about right. Yeah, it's growing every day. So the number does change, uh, quite frankly. Oh, okay. <laughs> growing wise. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yes. So the, we wear a couple different hats. In the, mm -hmm. in my team uh, helps lead the research for both technology and, and product ideas. Mm -hmm. And we do that in a in in very hands-on fashion we build prototypes in the lab with our engineering partners with our product people we collaborate with every lots of teams internally our sales team operations team we also lead the efforts to uh, with our collaborations with the broader tech community mm -hmm. and so we establish and run the open source office we also lead all the academic funding programs we actually have, we run a program called the bloomberg fellowship program. Yes. Uh, essentially, it's where we are collaborating with PhD students and postdocs around the world where we fund their research for a year. Uh, we They come in internship with us. They sit side by side with our engineers and people in the CTO office, and we collaborate on their research. We end up co-authoring research in peer-reviewed journals and conferences. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fantastic way. Both of those are a fantastic way to stay on top of some of the most interesting innovations in science and in infrastructure and technology. Yeah. Uh, clearly, the open source open source world is important. Just like any modern tech company, open source software. We use open source software throughout our tech stack, from everywhere from you know the developer tools to the infrastructure to some of our most advanced uh, analytic systems, including AI uh, systems. And so uh, we are. In the, in the research phase, in that hat, we are doing a lot of experimentation. We're doing a lot of communication about these ideas. Now, one thing to point out, though, is that this research is very directed. Uh, this is not, 
you know, in the days of the Bell Labs or, you know, Watson Research Center, where we're doing fundamental scientific research. This is all about what types of problems do we think we have to tackle to solve, to bring really interesting products and to solve our customers' problems. So it's very direct. And we try to optimize from research to, to products as quickly as possible. We try to shorten that time. Yeah. So the other hat we wear uh, is that we are product managers. And so when some of these ideas make sense and we socialize them and we are starting to develop them into capabilities or mm-hmm. infrastructure or external products, our other hat we wear is that we're the product managers for those systems and those solutions. So we're, my team happens to be the product manager for most of our core infrastructure at Bloomberg. Okay. And when you say, yeah. And Sean, when you say you're product managers, you're referring to the kind of product management where you don't just create the product and hand it over. You stay with it for the lifetime of it, essentially. How, how long ago did your CTO office expand into that? Because in some, in a lot of companies, product management is a reasonably newer function for the IT organizations. It could be they've been doing it maybe for three to five years, but not much longer than that. You know, we 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 did it in phases, and it's kind of a it wasn't a kind of a clear delineation. Uh, Bloomberg has always had a very strong product culture. Yeah, uh, they just used different terminology uh, even before I came along. They were very very concerned about um, each pixel on the screen. Go and see customers and taking mm-hmm. it back and 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 optimizing what you're working on. So all the things that are essential to product management. So in the beginning, it we we would stay with a product for a while or a capability, uh, but we would tend to hand it off uh, after some time. You know, mm-hmm. years. To uh, what we realized is some of the things that we've been building are in, are very advanced technically. They are we're building products that we didn't build before. Um, products for, for instance, for quants, mathematicians on the street to code in Python to talk to our APIs and to our data, mm-hmm. and that kind of you need. Uh, product managers with deep technology experience. And so we felt it was better for us to stay with our products um, indefinitely, sometimes for longer periods of time, it all kind of uh, is is kind of uh, a little bit in flux. Well, because your team there, your 300, um, they are PhD scientists, they are machine learning and AI experts. They're probably, I mean, they sound like they're very deeply technical but they also have a lot of business acumen from working at Bloomberg. How do you make sure that you keep that business acumen as high as the technical acumen? Yeah. What kind of, how do you approach sort of the retention and the education? So uh, Bloomberg, the core culture of what we do is we are obsessed with solving our customers' problems. And Mm so our product managers, uh, our engineers uh, are are deeply embedded with uh, solving those customer problems. They go see customers. They are in on the whiteboard with our product managers and our designers and salespeople. Uh, when you look at our footprint of where our engineers work, they work in New York City and in London. Those are two biggest hubs. And we have offices, mm-hmm. locations, smaller ones, uh, around the world, San Francisco and Frankfurt, but largely they're in in the financial centers around the world. Yes. Why is because we always wanted the people building the product to be right next to our customers, right next to the salespeople, right now. So it's yeah. impossible not to get in, you know, to be absorbing all this to in 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 to 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 not be involved and not not to be close to it. And in fact, we don't we don't have a philosophy of offshoring. We don't do that. We don't, we don't believe, interesting. Okay. We don't believe in sending, you know, building some product way out somewhere far away. We believe in building the product and coding sitting right next with, to the product managers, uh, Mm -hmm. Salesforce. And so right here in New York city in this building and, and, and where I'm speaking in 731 is lots of engineers are sitting side by side with their product teams, talking to customers every day. Well, and it sounds too that it, you get to stay 
I don't know if you're still hands on the keyboard or if you're still doing, uh, you know, like direct hands on <laughs> hands on work. But it does sound like you don't you don't let the rest of the team have all the fun. How much of that? How do you how do you keep yourself kind of au courant on all all of these different technologies? Yeah. Look, I, I surround myself with people far smarter than me in any one of these technologies and one of any one of these strategic areas that we're investing in. You know, the C2 office doesn't focus on focus on all the technology in the company. We focus on mm-hmm. key strategic areas, and that list changes over time. Mm-hmm. But when we do focus on it, it's 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 a it's a uh, it's about you know collaborating, like I said, uh, with other people, understanding what the problems are. My job is to help set them in the right direction. My help, my job is to help them pull in all the right resources and the right ideas. But with that, uh, I do get to join them with deep discussions on technology and architecture product direction. Uh, it is the best part of the job. It is the part of the job that keeps me coming to work. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely, you know, it's fun. I, yeah. I, 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 I like to tell everybody I have the best job in the, a company, uh, yeah. Mike Bloomberg. Uh, you can, you've been saying that, you know, the interviews with you over the years. You always are saying that, and you have had a, a kind of an extraordinary longevity in a CTO role. But the more we talk about it, the more I realize that it is far from a typical CTO role. Um, how fun that you got to create your dream job, and then you get to keep it for sixteen years. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I've had the pleasure of being able to work with the founders of this company um, mm-hmm. directly with Tom Secunda, one of the founders of the company for many years, an incredible product person, one of the best in the world. Uh, I got to work closely with Mike Bloomberg, and I still do. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's this company is dynamic. It's it is never resting on their laurels. We. Uh, we have an obsession with doing better for our customers than what we did yesterday. Yeah, we, we don't look a lot at what our competitors do. That's that's kind of a thing at Bloomberg. You know, why are you competitors? Because then you're just going to be a me too product. Think about what we're doing and yeah. think about what what problems we haven't solved. What are they? What is our customers struggling with? And the whole idea is that we're going to come up with solutions that the customers could even have dreamt of. Right? That's our job to dream of them. Right. Something they never knew they always needed and wanted. Yeah. And so, but the other thing is that Bloomberg is a a place where people spend a lot, a lot of time on, you know, a lot, a lot of time at, they spend their careers here. I'm, it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm 20 years here. Uh, there's plenty of other people with 20 years. A lot of our senior leadership has yep. been here 20 plus years. Uh, it is a place where if you're the right type of person and the right personality. It's an amazing place to work. Uh, and I obviously, I think that yeah. I've been here for so long, but our, uh, the the length of, of tenureship, I think shows that for a lot yeah. of. Yeah, well, the, and I think that was also something that helps companies that are able to stay private too. I've worked for many years, IDG was a private company that was the producer of Computer World, CIO Magazine, InfoWorld, all of these tech publications. And it, it was kind of, it was quite wonderful to be part of a private because you get more of a focused view of what the company should be and what the mission is and that sort of thing. I wanted to veer away a, a little bit before we get into talking more about uh, AI and your this advanced, the new alternative data initiatives that you've um, mentioned. I wanted to go up to that kind of big picture view of across the financial services industry. And this was something I asked you before when we were preparing for this about what your industry peers are struggling with the most today. And I was a little surprised to find out that it's still data. It's still the massive amounts of data. Talk about why that is. I mean, it it almost feels like, especially to people who don't work with data at the kind of depth and levels that you all do, it seems like, why why can't we get our arms around this finally once and for all in businesses? There's one thing about collecting data and storing it and having search engines uh, to point at it. And I think the world is, you know, uh, both private and, and or, or proprietary and open source software has really made that kind of a almost a solved problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what you find 
quickly find when you're trying to use data that it's so much more than access to the data. In order to let to 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 be able to generate insights out of data to really understand what's going on in the world, there's the data has to be linked. The data has to be uh, processed and organized in a way that you can ask the right questions, that you can derive insights out of them. And so the part that I think a lot of people realize now and, and, and Bloomberg realized from day one is that domain expertise has to go in hand in hand with data. And so we, we have been collecting high quality data for over 40 years. It's, it's a, a great asset that we have, but it wasn't the fact that we were just collecting the data. It was a fact that we, we had teams and teams of people who became experts and understood every facet of that data. It understood what was good, what was bad, understood how to process it, but more importantly, understood its place with relationship to all the other data and other systems that we have. Right. Uh, having a pile of data is one thing. Using it is very usually very very hard. There's, you know, I just give an example. Yeah. What, you know, it's often quoted that you know. 80% of a quant's job, a mathematician's job on the street, is just processing data, getting the data into the right form. And that's a lot of time that people are doing that. That's yeah. time spent not generating some other insight that you could have been generating. It's time spent away from looking at the other idea. And so in, even at Bloomberg, you know, we've been rethinking and and reimagining how even our structured data and we'll get to unstructured data you yes. know i'm sure we'll talk about that with the, the ai um but even the data we've been collecting for many years uh, we used it very effectively in certain ways but then when we started thinking about building cross asset class analytics uh mm -hmm. being able to look at a query across all of our data domains um you know, looking at bond information and company information, but also macro information or even weather information. How do you make that simple to, to be able to ask a question that joins across all of them? It's yes. not trivial. So we have been spending a lot of time modeling our data, creating this unified Bloomberg model, beta model that joins and, and creates and captures all the relationships between these entities and these objects. We built mm -hmm. As far as we know, one of the you know largest uh, knowledge graphs there is, which captures these relationships, which allows you to traverse through this data to 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 in in kind of the nth order, if you will, or uh, almost indefinite kind of relation uh, 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 traversal through relationships through this data, and it allows you to ask questions you couldn't asked before if you didn't organize it this way, if you didn't connect it in this way. And yeah. so data is still a very hard problem and there's no shortcut. We found that there's no shortcut. You go ahead and get any system you want. If you don't have the domain knowledge to, to, to process and link this data, then yeah. you're not getting the, uh, everything you can get out of your data. And it's also labor intensive because it's, yeah. It's not about typing on the keyboard. It's about thinking about all of these relationships and how to connect them and what makes sense. This data is messy. It's not like it's it's all indexed on one thing. Uh, we're we're dealing the financial markets looks at the world in a, in a, in a, uh, at a very broad scope, in a very broad wet manner. And so there's all these heterogeneous. I keep using that term, but lots of lots of different types of objects and and relationships that you're trying to capture. Right. Well, and I think about how many companies, especially in the last five years, have created an entire chief data officer position that often sits, you know, at the same level and right next to a CIO or a CTO. I don't know. Do you have a position like that at Bloomberg or is that essentially what you're doing in the CTO office? No, we do have a um, we have the uh, global head of data. We have a data okay. division. They, they okay. operate different from a lot of those chief data officers at the uh, let's say the banks. Um, okay. Our head of data um, is a person who runs the organization that's responsible for ingestion and po uh, and in okay. processing and. Mm -hmm 
a lot of that he has this person has a lot of the domain experts who are the initial uh creating the initial insights on that data which then gets to other teams and and they use it to power their analytics mm-hmm. uh and so uh, it i would say it's a different kind of job uh but we do have somebody who is a uh globally looking at our data assets all right um the one of the um other areas that we had talked about, and I'm I'm kind of itching to get into it too. It's about the AI. About um, when you and I talked about AI, you mentioned you said, well, you know, uh, there's a really big whoop right now about Gen AI, but we've been doing AI, we've been ingesting AI for 15 years. So, yes. and it just it's reminiscent to me a little of some of the other CIOs I've talked with. They're like we're not exactly new to AI. It's just generative AI has so captured the minds of marketers and CEOs and probably more people who don't really understand the complexities of data uh, like folks like you would. But let's talk about what you're doing in that area because you said you've got You've got some a whole story around Gen AI, and you like to talk about it. So let's go ahead and veer over to uh, that. Well, let me let, let's start with AI in general, right? So you mentioned okay. we have been building machine learning models for over fifteen years. Um, we uh, it, we have hundreds, if not thousands, of models running in production right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are doing all? It's it, doing everything from processing this massive amount of data that I mentioned, uh, that ingest of data. We have it. We're building analytics and insights and deriving, creating new data sets using it. We also use it directly in our terminal. Our, our flagship product. We build mm-hmm. features out of it. It's running one when customers are using some of our most popular functions. They're using these the these models are are generating uh, a lot of the the information and also features that we have there. So okay. let me just give you an example. Right out of that two and a half million documents that we ingest every day. Um, we have multiple machine learning models looking at every one of those documents. Right. So we have some models that are doing things, determining which topics are discussed in, let's say, a news story. Mm-hmm. Other ones that are doing named any disintegration, basically understanding what people and what companies are being discussed and are located in there. We map them to our IDs and map them to our mm-hmm. databases. We have other ones doing things like sentiment analysis. So this is all in the unstructured world. We have other models that are generating, uh, you know, uh, prices for bonds in, in, in the over-counter market, generating uh, prices for bonds that are illiquid. Uh, and so th- th- this is our bread and butter. This is something that we are using every single day. So it is kind of funny when you know uh, people are excited about AI. It, it is great. It's an exciting field. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been talking about it for years. It's something we've been building up our capabilities um, for quite a while. So we have an established process uh, um, establish, um, you know, teams and process for running AI at scale at Bloomberg. And we invest quite a bit in the people Mm -hmm. and the technology. We have a very large data science platform that you can, you know, can imagine what that is. Lots of interesting software uh, running on massive amount of GPUs. we collaborate with everyone on the domain aspects of building any of these products. Any of these models are always built with the domain experts I mentioned before, the subject matter experts in all these different fields, whether they're in our data team or in our product team. We're always building our AI models hand in hand with them. Um, and uh, and it's and, and we're always we're using AI. Uh, we're using our rich data sets in AI and we're using AI to enhance our data sets. So it's a kind of virtuous. Sure. <laughs> now, but getting to Gen AI, um, yeah, you know, it's really interesting. You know, uh, this all obviously captured the world's attention when OpenAI released their product. And now yes. my my uncle and aunt are coming to talk to me about AI on their phone, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, and they must they must sit you down and say, Sean, you do this kind of stuff, don't you? What <laughs> should I be worried about this? Should I be excited about it? And I, I fortunately, you told me one of your functions at at one of the kind of um, up uppercase things that you do at Bloomberg is that you keep silly stuff from invading the company. You know, like you don't chase every technology trend out there. We had an interesting chat about blockchain and how everybody wanted to like 
throw lots of dollars at that and you guys looked at it and said it's really just another database you know let's yeah exactly exactly we, oh. we looked at it from a first principles kind of approach and said you know right. it's a database that has these properties when do we need these properties and you know we talked to everybody at that time, you know, almost everybody yeah. Yeah. on the west coast east coast um and yeah we held my ground and and uh you know mm-hmm. com- and we're right. We were right. You know, this was. You yeah, know, we yeah, don't. Yeah. We don't yeah. need blockchain to solve the problems that we have. And I think it's kind of died down. Uh, and so you're absolutely right. I, I often joke and say half my job is keeping the silly things out of mm-hmm. of the company. Um, but Gen AI is not a silly thing. All right. That does not Gen apply. Been, yeah. You know, it is. Uh, we are convinced that. Um, large language models will play an important role in solving the kinds of problems we're solving. However, there has been a tremendous amount of hype. And and I think everybody now kind of has been writing about 2024 is kind of where everybody comes down from the, the, from the high and the excitement of the overhype and people are going to realize that it's not everything that people are saying. So we were never in the camp that generative AI is the solution to the problems. We have a particular philosophy, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, how we think about large language models. Um, the, you know, first of all, these models operate very, diff- very differently from our existing AI models, right? So the first thing to say okay. is that these models um, have, uh, are more general. Um, these models out of the box, you can actually do this. You can ask it to do sentiment analysis. You can do it information extraction. You can do a lot of those things where we've built previous you know, individual models for. Now, the point I want to make, though, is that we will continue to invest and build the, let's call them traditional uh, AI models, which is kind of funny, just they're the state of the art, and they still are, um, because we, we operate at this very interesting intersection of, of constraints. We, Mm -hmm. I mentioned that we ingest a massive amount of data, so a huge volume, but we also operate at, uh, often our processing and our analytics have to operate at a very low latency. And so we, we, this, uh, we, we operate in usually in the tens of milliseconds to do a lot of our processing. And so okay. that's unlike many other tech firms, they usually can take a little time to, 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 to deliver a message or to analyze something. Um, and we also, the other constraint is our precision has to be extremely high. Bloomberg is a trusted source of information on the street. And so we have to have correct numbers. So this intersection of those three constraints usually means that we have to build very, very high precision models, very custom tuned for a particular problem that can operate at low latency. And we, we obsess on um, the quality of that. And so large language models might be able to do sentiment analysis, but they do it in a very slow fashion. Uh, it takes seconds to get an answer, et cetera. They're not there yet to process the amount of data that we have. Um, the accuracy is a big problem. Right. Uh, okay. Well, I'll get to that in a second. So let me finish the kind of interesting, uh, 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 the interesting part, the, the positives, right? They're general. Uh, they have a broad knowledge of the world. Um, they train on huge amount of data. They really do know, no, in quotes, uh, understand a lot of, of parts of the world, a lot of different topics that you can talk about with it. Mm-hmm. And the interesting other thing is that they, they're accessible. You, you know, you, you, you program through language you give them sentences and paragraphs yes uh, and all of our other models you need a ai engineer to program with python or cuda or something you need some kind Here. of quant background yes you can just, uh, programming you can just wander background. in and talk to it and, yeah. and so it really opens the door to it but now the the the, the challenges are uh, like we were i was just getting to is that um they, they have some limitations and i think that's what the world is kind of finding right now they hallucinate Right, we, they give wrong answers. There's no, there's no ground truth in these models. They are predicting the next word. Ultimately, these large language models. They're more than they do it in a very incredible, incredibly uh, interesting way and very advanced way. But ultimately, they they have a a statistical view of what the next word should be in a sentence. That's different from having a ground truth. So they hallucinate, yeah. they give wrong, uh, factual uh, wrong they, answers. They create also, a kind of science fiction view. Yes. 
of the data. Most of the time, it's, most of times it's good, but you don't. <laughs> You, know, you you uh, the, the, they they do give wrong answers enough of the time that you, it's tough to use it in a in a in a, in a in a for a problem where you need super high accuracy. The other problem is that they don't really understand logical reasoning all that well. They don't do math. Uh, they don't have, understand a temporal information and uh, the temporal nature of, of information that you trained it on. Uh, so there's limitations, mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah. our philosophy uh, on this is that they're still useful. They're still useful in a way that uh, if you combine it with our trusted data and our trusted analytics, we can use it to, in, in the, we can use it, their properties of understanding language. And okay. so you, so instead of, we, would, we don't wanna use the large language model to answer questions uh, by itself. We're not gonna have a Bloomberg chat GPT type of thing where, where the model has been trained on lots of information and we trust the model to give the right answer. That's where you get in trouble. Instead, you teach the model to talk to our databases, to teach the model to talk to our analytics, embed it into our workflows, and it becomes just one ingredient that you mix with all of our trusted sources of information in our workflow. Yeah. With that, you can solve some really interesting problems, right? Well, you would use a phrase where you said we use it to nourish our data. Yeah. Which is just I was thinking of the data as a a big hungry uh, hungry animal at the table. Uh, give us an example of how uh, it's something that is happening right now where it's nourishing data that you, was a much harder road to come by before. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the area that I'm really excited about, one of the areas I'm really excited about is mm-hmm. the, uh, in the unstructured data and these documents, these millions of documents that we have, it's typically been very difficult, uh, or time consuming to build a model, a machine learning model to be able to extract information on a, out of a particular document. Mm-hmm. And so we, like I said before, we build particular models to go and look at a document and extract information, let's say earnings on a, 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 at a company's filings and, and we process that and everything else. But when somebody want, comes to when the one part, when, when somebody in the company comes to us and say, hey, we want to extract this kind of information, it's usually a whole different you know, model that you have to go through. Mm-hmm. Large language models make ad hoc exploration of data in unstructured data and unstructured documents uh it makes it a reality it, it allows people to be able to mine data and almost make the data and the information in that in those documents almost as liquid as the data that's in our databases mm-hmm. so you now have a different way of thinking about this data that's been kind of difficult to use you can make this accessible um, and okay. the idea would be eventually to work on joining it with your structured data. And so I now can think of, I, I keep harping on earlier, I was harping on the fact that we have to link our data sources. Now linking the information that's contained in the unstructured world with the, the databases and the structured data is incredibly promising and powerful. And so this is some of the things that we're working on. I think when we look at the kinds of products that we are now releasing, um, they have been really around, first and foremost, around efficiencies and how do you allow people to digest and understand this massive flow of information and how do you allow people to interact with our products in a more uh, easy way, a, a, a simpler way to discover the information that, that we have to be able to interact with our systems in a more natural way. And I think that's what's really exciting. That's what we're focusing on. Okay. Well, and you'd mentioned too, that um, last year, I think you mentioned in, in March, there was a paper published on Bl- Bloomberg GPT, where it was the world's first finance-specific LLM, the large language model. And that's, is that essentially something happening in your quant research area? Or is, is that one of many such products you've already rolled out? Or is that kind of the first of its kind? So that was a research project that, mm-hmm. um, as an example of the kinds of research that we do, um, both the C2 office and our engineering teams, uh, our AI engineering teams uh, partnered on exploring 
what would how would we go about building a large uh, a domain specific large language model for finance as you mentioned mm-hmm. um, at that time there wasn't one that existed but we also set out to do something novel and interesting and in part of the reason why the paper was uh, very popular is that we wanted to build a model that was both a domain specific model but also also a generic model and so what we did it we ended up building a uh, a, a, 50, a 50 billion parameter model so it's the size of, you know you can think about it, it's the size of the model it was a large language model it was built mm-hmm. on uh, 700 billion tokens tokens you can think about it as a word so a lar- large amount of documents a lot of data mm-hmm. half of half of that data was from kind of the open source world think of like Wikipedia and the Library of Congress the other half was financial data that Bloomberg had and paper really goes through how really most of the paper was uh, how we built it, but also how it was going through the evaluations. How did it, how, how did it pass, you know, how does it compare and how does it work against benchmarks? And what we showed was you can build a model that is really good at the generic, just as good in the generic domain, you know, the gener- generic questions of English and, and, and problems, but much better performing in domain in finance so uh, this was a research project we since then we did not um take this model and just release it because of all the other issues that we mentioned uh the hallucination problem and and how do you build safety into these models there was a lot for us to learn before we released a model like that and so since then we have been building more and more powerful models we're building models that now understand not just about companies and news but also about derivatives uh municipal bonds uh, a lot of macro Mm -hmm. data you know bloomberg has been collecting for years, collecting data from central banks, their reports and their transcripts, and really rich discussions on on macro information and the economies of the world. Mm-hmm. And so we've been gathering uh, lots of real high quality data, but there's a lot of work that goes into curating even those. You have to process the data before you train it. And so there's been a lot of work going in there. In the meantime, we've been building successfully larger models, different models of different sizes that we use for different things. And we are now just now releasing a series of products that are using our large language models. Uh, We just released um, this week our first product that uses a uh, large language models and it's uh, an earnings call transcript summarization and AI generation generated summaries of mm-hmm. called transcripts and we do it in a different way I think than uh, most other people doing it uh, in a very interesting way uh, and the, so much time was spent to make sure it's accurate it doesn't hallucinate yeah. so a lot of processing that goes along it's not just sticking a large language model and saying go ahead and summarize it there's much more to it than that. And there's a lot of checks to make sure that it's doing the right thing and training on those models. Uh, this is just the first of a series of products that we have that will be coming out in the, in the next several months that uh, and throughout the year that are the that are really advancing um, the 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 state of the art for people to, you know, uh, state of the art of use of AI, but more importantly, we're solving customer problems. Transcripts yeah, yeah. themselves, right? If you think about the problem we're solving, analysts are inundated with lots of information, sell well, side any, reports, et cetera. Yeah. But they, during earnings call season, they are they have to either sit through hours of these calls uh, and and also read other call a companies' calls. Sometimes they they cover and other companies interpreting the calls. I know I've I've read some of those myself, and I think if I had to read more than one or two a day, I would get a little suicidal. They are just they're they're, so they're very dense. We're <laughs> helping our users be able to get a, you know what's the essence, what's the most important yeah. things that were said in that call, but we can also bring to light. Uh, some of our structured data to give people context. Yes. And so when a, when a CEO gives guidance or CFO gives guidance on a particular, you know, uh, uh, fundamental number that they're giving out, we can check, is that above or beyond, uh, above or below yeah. expectation? We can look at historical trends of their debt pay down, et cetera. So we can do a lot to help with customers understand even what really happened because sometimes it's not just a number it's also 
what's going around it. It's this a number in context. This will help yeah. our customers digest and, and look at more transcripts. Maybe they're, it's not even the companies that they might be covering. They might cover uh, a, a company, but they, this could help them look at the suppliers to that company or their, that company's customers and, and get a better sense overall of, uh, of, of what's going on in the world. Okay. I have two really excellent questions that have come in from our alert and, and uh, watching listeners here. One of them is asking if you could please elaborate a little more on your ongoing data quality challenges and how you and your team keep up with them to ensure the best data uh, possible constantly. Well, first, first and foremost, it starts with using judgment about what are the high quality sources of data. Yes. Right. You know, you know, you have to be careful about where you get your data and whom you get yep. it from, et cetera. Who's so hallucinating all- about this data, right? <laughs> <laughs> Where's the high quality stuff, right? Yeah. Um, and and so there's a lot of thought and, and there's a lot of people who put a lot of thought into uh, sourcing um, the right data. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot a lot of a lot of what we have done from a, when it comes to a processing and a quality perspective is understanding what the data should look like, uh, what are the anomalies, what are what what do problems look like? And so it, there's not one type of approach. It's really a uh, a collection of approaches when it comes to this. There are rules-based systems where people have typed up rules and you have scripts that are looking at and processing this data, capturing a lot of their domain knowledge into uh, programs. Um, there are uh, sanity checks where you're looking at the differences between yesterday and today and, and looking at whether or not there are some really abnormal kind of movements and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, are, there are machine learning uh, tools that we use and approaches to look at statistical um, understanding of what the data looks like. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of a multifaceted approach to data quality, data processing. There's not one way, one thing to do. And it takes a lot of experience building that up over time. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's a huge effort that we put into it. <laughs> uh, it's an yeah. investment we make, uh, continually to make, because it's so important. And we get better at it. Um, and, and, you know, and there is, it, there, we'll say that these systems also rely on human beings. When something's wrong, when there's an anomaly, there's something that says something's not right here, it kicks it out to a human being. And so we have experts who live and breathe this particular domain and this data, and they can look at it and say, something's wrong here, right? Okay, well- So this is still human in the loop. This is not about getting rid of the humans. It's about making our people, you know, when we started using machine learning in in our data division, um, you know, we've had, when I joined the company, it was largely, you know, rows and rows of data clerks, uh, people who would use uh, rules-based scripts and engines, and and but largely they were like typing into our databases and co- copy and paste. Annual entry, yeah. But, you know, so much has been automated, but we haven't gotten rid of any of those people. That team has only grown. Those people are the experts who deal with the exceptions. They're also the ones that train our models. They give feedback to the models. They are the ones who are keeping these mm-hmm. systems knowledgeable and keep them and training them and keeping them uh, and tuning those systems over time. Yeah. So it's really interesting uh, in and of itself, the data processing. Yes. Well, there was another question too about, and this gets into the the security aspects of data. Are there any insights from you on how to tackle the data security issue, especially in an AI-enabled world of the future? Uh, and the, the preface to this question was how easily we connect and retrieve data from all these different sources and how important that makes the probably the data quality as well as the security. Uh, and that there are some that, of course, have national security aspects associated with sharing them across supply chain ecosystems. Sure. Um, and I know that, you know, the, the topic of cybersecurity is always a very dicey, thin ice area for CTOs or CIOs to speak to. But uh, if you have insights or advice you'd like to offer there, then by all means, here's your opportunity. Well, um, I think it is a pretty complex um, answer because it's a complex question. Uh, First and foremost, it starts with getting the right data sources. It's also, you know, um, how you think about 
how you're processing this data. Um, mm-hmm. The systems that you build, um, you know, we just don't take data from anywhere. We have mm-hmm. connections to sources, to exchanges over private lines. We build security into all of our infrastructure there. Every one of our employees has biometric authentication to do to get into our systems and then multiple layers of that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, checks uh, that go back and forth on this data. We, we, we capture the original documents and original sources. And actually we provide transparency to our customers. Oftentimes we'll have a, a company's fundamentals exp- shown their revenue numbers or their debt numbers. And you can click right on the Bloomberg terminal and see the actual PDF that we sourced from a government website or from whatever source that we got. Mm-hmm. We use that ourselves to validate a lot of this, uh, of the sources. So source uh, is source information is, is vitally uh, important. I don't know if there's any, silver bullet I can give in terms of advice. It's kind of an investment along the entire chain. Security has to be built from not as an alpha. It has to be built from the ground up into everything we do. And that's, uh, you know, I think that's been the ethos and understood from the beginning when uh, the company started. Yeah. Well, and I, I always love examples that say, well, this isn't the silver bullet because it, from what I can tell, the only thing a silver bullet has ever killed is a vampire in fiction. You know, silver bullets really don't exist in the real world, although maybe we wish they did, right? Now, um, another topic I wanted to touch on, because I know that this is close to your heart, about creating the right environment for innovation to thrive. And how have you, how I, it's pretty clear how you're doing that today in your 16 year career as the CTO at Bloomberg. How has the way you approach that changed or adapted or matured over time? Yeah, it, it is a, uh, like you said, it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart. It's something that we we think about a lot here. I think a lot about it. Um, but I have to say, it first starts with, um, you know, we are building on top of the company culture that we, that I came to in 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mike Bloomberg had, is known, is famous for creating an open environment, both at the company and also when he went to, you know, became mayor. He brought that same kind of open seating arrangement environment where people are sitting next together, t- together who are working on projects. Um, I mentioned how we get to the whiteboard and we are collaborating across teams. I mentioned how the engineers sit here. The way we sit is not based on reporting change. It's based on what you're working on. Uh, what teams are you working on? And so you'll have people from different departments all sitting around each other. Uh, that spirit of uh, an inv- that spirit of an innovative environment where it allows for the free flow of exchange of ideas is something that I've been trying to build upon for for my time uh, at mm-hmm. Bloomberg. Uh, we, I b- helped build the first UX design department at Bloomberg. And suddenly we had people with really interesting backgrounds, artists. Uh, I know. They were not quants and math majors. That's right. They were programmers or quants and math majors. They yeah. had a very different perspective on the environment, uh, on, on the problems and how to solve them. Mm-hmm. Uh, these people with psychology degrees, et cetera. And, and it really, this was some time ago when I first started, it really drove home this concept that if we could create an environment where we have a cross of, uh, I'm sorry, a collection of different disciplines, uh, a collection of different backgrounds, people from very diverse, you know, uh, histories and experiences, then, uh, and we are all working and focused on a particular problem. What I saw was it was incredible exchange of ideas, a really challenging of the ideas. And you have to foster that environment, that challenging ideas is okay. Uh, yes, that's psychological upon, safety. I've heard that called recently. Yes. If you can build upon that then and, and, and really encourage people, then I think you can get some of the best uh, solutions out of people. You can get the best ideas and it creates an incredible environment for people to thrive and they're all learning from each other. Mm-hmm. And so it, I've been trying to do that in 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 drive home the idea that we are 
really dependent on each other. The, the best ideas don't necessarily come from the researcher who might be an expert in the idea. The best idea might come from a salesperson or an operations person. And a really great idea can come from our customers. A really great idea can come from really almost anywhere. We have to be open to accepting those ideas and challenging our way of thinking. Uh, and so we do a lot of this work within the C2 office of sharing ideas, of presenting and challenging and creating this, uh, this ecosystem of, of, of knowledge sharing, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's, it's trying new things. It's, it's, it's experimenting with that idea and seeing what works, what doesn't work, but being open to uh, people with backgrounds that might be non-traditional. Um, right. And, yeah. Uh, and bringing them into the mix. Okay. And so it's been, uh, it's been exciting. It's, it, it is yeah. one of where you also, though, have to train people to communicate properly. There's a lot of mm-hmm. F focus on how do we communicate our de- ideas? How do we uh, present our ideas, not just to the experts who have the same background as you, but for people who, who don't have the expertise? There was a really interesting um, research by... Um, Catherine Phillips, I think her name was, she was uh, vice dean at Columbia Business School. She passed away some time ago, but one of her research was studying why do diverse teams work better? And her research showed that it wasn't because there was new, necessarily there was new ideas, that, that was part of it, but it be, it because it made people uncomfortable. It made people work harder at explaining and defending and challenging each other's ideas. So this idea that uh, yeah. you just get all these new ideas is one part of it, but the other part is that you have to communicate differently. You have to express yeah. it. It makes you think about your problems differently. And so that's a big focus of what Of course, because if you're in your total comfort zone, you'll just be the way you always are and your brain will be running along the same tracks. Whereas when you're being a little more careful to be direct and respectful and also to, I, I think people listen differently as well when they're in diverse groups like that. Very last question for you in these last few minutes. There was a um, a press release out that was throwing your name all around on the internet about uh, alt, alt data, uh, mm-hmm. Bloomberg making alternative data accessible alongside traditional financial data. This is a couple months ago in September. What, first of all, tell the psych majors and journalism majors out there, is alternative data unstructured data or what no, is not it? Necessarily. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's a kind of a, it's kind of funny. We joke about it and say, you know, it's a it's a silly name, alternative. It's just data, but it's uh, <laughs> it's just non-traditional data for the financial markets. It's it's the data okay. that the companies haven't reported or the stuff that the markets haven't reported. Uh, but it typically comes in really interesting ways. It's often the exhaust of other businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is. Um, oftentimes unstructured data, but sometimes structured data, but very complex. It mm-hmm. typically involves uh, advanced processing capabilities and techniques like in advanced data science to deal with it. So it's things like credit card observation, credit card uh, receipts. Uh, and it it is things like satellite imagery and shipping information, things that you know traditionally in finance were very much on the outside and the edge. And yeah. just true to Bloomberg's original mission to bring transparency and efficiencies into the markets, we're looking at how do we take this complex data that only a few hedge funds know how to process uh, and mm-hmm. bring it to the masses? How do we take this and give it out to all the analysts and portfolio managers so they can get observations and insights out of this data? And we're and we've released some interesting capabilities on on mm-hmm. uh, on the on the Bloomberg terminal for everyone. And we're going to continue looking at really interesting assets and, and data sources to generate new insights for people. Yeah. Well, I can see how it would be a little more nerve wracking too, because the chances of getting something a little skewed with non traditional data are probably a lot higher. I imagine your models probably figure that out, but. You know, it's, it's, uh, I don't know if it's, um, it's the hard part is generating the insights, but tying it back and making it useful to somebody who's analyzing a company. And so it's great to have all this satellite imagery and, or this credit card data, what does that mean? What does that mean to an analyst who's looking at Starbucks same store sales or Lululemon online sales? How does that, how do you tie it back 
to the, the information they're already used to looking at? How do you tie it back to the company's reported data uh, uh, KPIs? How do you allow them to now cast on it? How do you make it really simple? Then you have to give them all the statistics about the error bars and the reliability of the data. So you do have to do that part of it. The hard part is actually tying it back to what they understand and the other uh, information about the company. Okay. Well, that's a really great explanation. Thank you. I can see, I can tell you work with people in universities and the academics that you all have around you because you've just, um, you probably have been like this all your life, but you really explain things very well. Oh, so thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thanks for that. And thanks for joining us here today. Uh, we got a couple of great questions from our audience and you've been an absolute delight to talk to. So I can't thank you enough for being here on Bio Leadership Live. All right. If you joined us late for this conversation today, do not despair. You can watch the full uh, interview, this whole episode later right here on LinkedIn, but also on CIO.com and on our YouTube channel, CIO's YouTube channel. Leadership Live is available as an audio podcast wherever you find your podcast today. And I hope that you enjoyed and learned from this conversation today with CTO Sean Edwards of Bloomberg as much as I did. I'll be back again next month on Wednesday, February 17th at noon Eastern, when I'll be joined by Carl Pierberg, who is the Senior Vice President and CTO at AMB Sports and Entertainment, which among other things is the parent company of the Atlanta Falcons. Do take a moment to subscribe to our CIO YouTube channel, where you can find more than 120 of these similarly fabulous kind of interviews with some of the leading lights in the CIO and CTO world today. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you here again next time.